1: And you've turned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Dr. Nicole benders hetty is our guest this week. Dr. Benders-Hetty is a board-certified psychiatrist and medical doctor of behavioral health at Included Health, a leading virtual care and healthcare navigation company. At Included Health, she leads the company's behavioral health practice, focusing on patient experience, practice management, clinician recruitment, clinical support, and business development. Dr. Benders-Hattie earned her BA in public health from Johns Hopkins University. She completed her medical and residency training at New York University School of Medicine, after which she completed a fellowship in public psychiatry at Columbia University. She believes passionately in reducing mental health stigma and improving access to care for individuals across the entire spectrum of behavioral health conditions. Dr. Benders-Hattie, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so happy to be here
1: with you. No, we appreciate your time. And like I said before the show, I know how busy you are, but just an extremely important topic. So just, you know, I'm thankful for you taking some time with us today. So I just shared your extremely impressive credentials with our audience. Would you share with us what attracted you to the mental health profession?
2: Sure. Well, yeah, part of that introduction, you mentioned my my undergraduate degree in public health. I knew from just a very young age I wanted to help people in some way. I think public health is a great way to be able to do that. And, you know, it's not just about reducing um, the burden of disease, but of reducing, um, you know, the, the stigma associated with health care, disparities in healthcare that we see out there. And when I got to medical school, you know, I just always found in all of my rotations, I wanted to spend more time talking to people i wanted to get to know the story behind the story who they were who their families were um, so i think that kind of naturally led me to psychiatry
1: and you're involved fittingly enough through a company called involved health in real cutting-edge approaches to mental health care we're going to dive deep into that topic later in the podcast but i'd like to start by having you share some insights about stress what it is and what it isn't first off is stress and mental health condition.
2: So it's a great question, right? And um, again, one of the reasons why I love having conversations like this one, um, because getting education out there about what what is a condition, what's not a condition, um, I get a lot of questions about all the time. So stress is not a mental health condition, right? Stress is something that we all experience, you know, mental health professionals included. Um, and I would say it's a normal um, and expected part of life. Um, One thing that you want to be on the lookout for is when stress is chronic and prolonged and when stress starts to have more of of a functional kind of impact in your day to day. Is that stress becoming so overwhelming that it's stopping you from being able to function in other, other areas of your life? That's when you really want to look more closely at the impacts of stress.
1: You just mentioned that we all get stress. Is that true? Do we all, all of us get stressed out because there's always somebody who seems to be, you know, cool as a cucumber, you know, cool, calm and collected all the time? Or is that just them putting a facade up and then kind of burying everything?
2: Well, you know, I kind of think about it like that, uh, the analogy of the the calm duck on the top of the surface, but underneath their legs are kind of frantic, <laughs> frantically swimming. Um, I think absolutely everyone experiences stress. How different people express that stress, right, and how it it presents in the the world for them can be very different depending on things like personality, things like um, coping skills, things like resiliency. But everyone experiences stress from time to time. It's very normal and expected.
1: And do certain personality types handle stress better than others? You know, for instance, is it easier for extroverts to handle stress than introverts?
2: Yeah, so... I don't know I would use the word better, right? Certainly, again, it's that expression of stress that I think can look very different um, depending on your personality type, right? While an introvert may um, not be vocal and outwardly expressing how stress is impacting them, perhaps it's taking more of a physical toll on them. Maybe it's something that's causing a lot of racing thoughts and worries, but they're internalizing a lot of that. Whereas an extrovert may be much more vocal about, you know, not only seeking help for its stress, but communicating to others and in the world around them how that stress is impacting them.
1: And how does stress manifest itself? You know, what are some of those symptoms?
2: Yeah, so I think that there's there's a lot, right? I mean, I think that one key um, in taking care of your mental health in general is to be on the lookout for um, changes, things that are not um, um, typically um common for you as an individual, right? Because there are, um, for example, mood changes that stress can bring about. It can lead to you constantly worrying, um, having less self-confidence, having ups and downs with your mood, being more angry or irritable, right? Feeling more hopeless. Um, But stress can also impact you physically as well, right? It can lead to you having things like headaches, um, muscle tension, muscle aches. It can even lead to um, stomach problems, things like nausea, um, diarrhea. Um, It can lead to elevated blood pressure, which can lead to a lot of other um, medical complications. It can lead to you feeling tired all the time. So if something is really, again, chronically taking a toll on you where you're noticing these things um, more and more, really something to pay more attention
1: to. And are there times when stress could actually be good for us?
2: I think so, actually, right? You know, um, I think that w- when you're faced with a new challenge, right, when you have to solve a problem that you're confronted with in life, no matter how big or small that may be, um, it can really challenge us in ways that can be good. It can help us grow, right? Um, Think of an example, if you're, say, driving to work one day, right, the typical route that you take every day to get to work, and you encounter the road's closed, right? How do you navigate that? How are you going to choose a different direction? Which way is going to get me um, to work on time still? That kind of challenge can be unexpected and can cause stress, but but that kind of
1: practice can be a good thing to help us function better. A moment ago, you mentioned chronic stress. What kind of physical issues can chronic stress cause?
2: Yeah, so the, a lot of the physical symptoms may um, uh come about for other reasons, right? If you have a headache because you're dehydrated, you're not drinking enough water, for example, that can be something that you don't think too much about. But when stress is causing headaches, right? You can find that it happens much more um, much more frequently, much more intensely. Um, when things like stress are raising your blood pressure, right, that can lead you know, ultimately to things like heart disease, Um, It can impact your blood sugar numbers and lead to things like diabetes. So um, another example of why I think catching these kinds of changes in yourself early, right, even thinking about um, um, uh, early signs of stress can be really important to prevent those kinds of things from progressing into more serious medical conditions.
1: So you talk about finding these things early, you know, what steps can I or should I take when I'm stressed to feel better? And when should I take those steps?
2: Yeah, so um, I think as early and as often as you can, um, being very proactive about reducing stress is is an approach that that many people should um, should take. Right, thinking about your day to day, because there are things that you can do about it. I um, mean, I think that very common ways that people learn to manage stress um, can be things like exercise. Right. Um, Around this time of the year, I often recommend people are getting outside, getting some fresh air, even even though many places of the country are burdened with cold weather because that sun exposure, right, that vitamin D boost can help as far as how you're managing stress. Um, You can do things like prioritize self-care, right? Spend time with family and friends. I mean, all of those things um, can help you feel more connected and reduce the impact of stress on your life.
1: And how effective is exercise in reducing stress? and follow maybe is some exercise better than others?
2: Uh, So I think any exercise you're going to be able to commit to and stick with is the kind of exercise that you want to be engaging in, right? So any kind of aerobic exercise, really, it can be your typical, you know, jogging or cycling, but it can be dancing. It can be gardening, right? Um, If you have accountability and a partner that you can and get on board to set new exercise goals that can help as far as sticking with it and having that motivation. But we know that aerobic exercise increases the blood circulation to your brain and thus how we're physiologically responding to stress. So absolutely can be a good way to reduce
1: stress. So I guess, you know, here we are January 31st, one month into the new year. Just curious, everyone's resolutions are out there on the exercise front. You know, and to that point, when I think of exercise, I think of weight can stress cause weight gain?
2: Yes. Yes, it can. Um, And not just uh, because people talk about stress eating, right? That if you're stressed, a lot of people um, um, will naturally choose a coping mechanism, like eating more unhealthy food. So that of course can lead to weight gain as well. However, The stress hormone cortisol, right, also it can increase your appetite generally, it can cause you to crave more salty foods, more sweet foods. So that in that way, the cortisol um, hormone of stress can absolutely lead to weight gain
1: for you. And when do you believe medication should be prescribed to help relieve stress or anxiety?
2: So great question, you know, and I think behind the question is the fact that not everyone needs medication to deal with stress and anxiety. Um, you know, in 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 psychiatry, we really think about um, two factors um, in terms of whether something like medication is indicated. One is time, how long you've been dealing with stress, right, and whether that that may be one big stressor can be a multitude of smaller stressors that are causing you to feel overwhelmed all the time. But how long has that been going on? And two, um, your functional status, right? How is any stress impacting that day-to-day for you? If you are so anxious that your mind won't start stop racing, you're constantly worrying, you can't fall asleep, you're not getting enough rest at night, or you can't concentrate at work and you're less productive at work, or you're so anxious that you're relationships um, are, are challenged or fighting with family and friends all the time. Those kinds of behavior and functional changes, it's also something that we look at to just determine the severity of any symptoms. The more severe symptoms are, the more likely to so something like medication will
1: be useful for that individual. And sticking with medications for a moment, you know, as we've gone through the pandemic, one thing I said early on in the show, as we put a bigger focus on mental health and well-being is you know once we come through it which i saw today president biden said may 11th is the official end of the global pandemic you know there's gonna be a mental health tsunami and it's becoming more and more prevalent more and more common good news is there's been a positive spotlight shown in mental health so it's no longer taboo but do you feel you know in terms of the medication front that you know we, we know we're going through an opioid crisis right now mm-hmm. has the pandemic helped spur or ignite or spark that opioid crisis with doctors just giving out scripts Oh,
2: so, you know, I think that there's a couple of ways to think about that. Um, I do think that there has been enough attention on the opioid crisis that it has not prompted a lot of overprescribing of those types of medications. Um, I think that there's been a lot of scrutiny there um, from the, the on the medical community, on prescribers in general. I do think the other thing that we're seeing, though, is in effort to cope with the added stress of the pandemic. A lot of people have been turning to um, negative coping skills, right? Including substance use, um, including alcohol use. So we're indeed seeing a spike um, in those types of conditions that are being diagnosed. Um, Same with the kind of spike in things like um, trauma-focused conditions, things like PTSD that are the result of actual exposure to real life and death situations. Um, so we are seeing a shift in the kinds of conditions that are out there, and I think that we just have to be prepared for it.
1: And how do we become more mentally, emotionally resilient? Is there a magic? Well, I want to say magic pill, but is there a secret sauce for that?
2: Well, you know, when I think about resilience and how to best build it, and it it, it can be built, right? It can be learned, which is the positive thing here. Um, but I really start to think about the kinds of connections um, that we have in our lives, right? So healthy friendships, for example, right, can increase our sense of belonging, can increase our um, self-confidence, can reduce stress and anxiety, right? So it's really something um, that we see in our research as well, that even older adults who are more socially active have greater late life satisfaction right? So that type of connection with friends. Another way of feeling connected is being connected with your, with your community, right? With your school, with your workplace. Really, I think that um, that kind of social connectedness is at the core of both mental and emotional health. Um, and that when you feel connected, you have lower levels of anxiety and depression. So those that's how I, I start to think about how you build resilience.
1: You mentioned the workplace. And again, as we're coming through the pandemic now and more and more people are going to back to work, You know, certainly if not part-time, full-time, on-site, you know, as we look at that workplace, how, what, and when should we communicate to our bosses or coworkers that were stressed, anxious, or depressed?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, another great question. And I think, you know, just coming back to the, the increased attention in mental health during the pandemic, um, I always say mental health is health, right? We, we don't... We, the fact that we're reducing stigma, be having these conversations and talking about this more, I think, is a really great thing. That translates to the workplace as well. In an ideal um, kind of scenario, you do have um, conversations, discussions about mental health resources that are commonly happening. You can have, you know, bosses and supervisors being role models for being able to talk more openly about. Um, struggles about the kind of um, impact that work or even outside factors is having on their mental health. I think to be able to have those conversations and to help people really realize that they're not alone um, is going to go a long way towards helping to foster those kinds of communications and, and keep them going. Um, in regards to what we were talking about before, the kind of prevention piece, I think again, if you're noticing that you're so stressed in the in a work environment that it's impacting your performance, it's impacting your productivity, that's something that you want to be trying to address and and speak about um, just as early as you can, right? In terms of not only. Um, understanding whether there are other you know, contingencies, other supports, other resources that can be put in place. But just so you're setting expectations um, for everyone given their different roles in the workplace. So I think as early and as often as we can and to be able to continue having these conversations so that we know exactly how that particular workplace may be influencing individuals' mental health and then help them through it more quickly and efficiently.
1: You just mentioned how some managers or team leaders are really being the, the tip of the spear and being very open about being able to communicate and talk to them about mental health. But in reality, what should our expectations of our bosses and coworkers be when we communicate that we're having mental health challenges?
2: Well, I think the expectation should be um, being an active listener. Um, not being judgmental in any way. I mean, I think that the reason why so much stigma exists out there is because people are afraid of how they'll be received, right? If they disclose that something's going wrong with them. So to help um, reduce that fear and to get people to open up um, and be more honest about how they're truly feeling inside, I think that you have to create a safe space for them to be able to do so without fear of retribution or being punished or being fired um. Again, the realization that we all have struggles from time to time and that we're working together to best support that individual, I think is the best um, approach you can have to that kind of conversation.
1: And some people feel that stress arises for them because they aren't very good at setting boundaries. And if someone isn't good at that, they've likely never been good at setting boundaries. How do they get better at it when something they've never been able to do?
2: Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I think... Um, It comes down to practice, right? Again, the positive thing here is that establishing boundaries, maintaining boundaries is something that also can be learned. Um, And I think that just as I was just saying, right, the, the fear of not knowing how you'll be received if you set a boundary with someone or in a certain circumstance is often what stops people from wanting to say no when they really need to. Um, So practice, right? Practice on something that's, you know, relatively benign. Practice with a friend or a family member for something. Even role-playing, right, Um, with a trusted um, um, companion, right, can really help um, imagine how those conversations might go and help you feel more prepared for that. Because I think that one thing I say to to my patients all the time is that once you see um, the kind of benefit, that you can get from setting boundaries with people, that it allows for so much more self-care time. It reduces stress. It allows you to have more time to spend with family and friends. That's going to serve as more motivation to continue doing that because you see the impact that it has on you as an individual.
1: And I get the sense that people are beginning to pay as much attention to their mental health as they are their physical health. And employers seem to be much more sensitive to their employees' mental health needs than ever before. First off, do you agree with that? And secondly, is that something that happened only because of the COVID pandemic, or is there something else going on?
2: Well, I definitely agree with that statement. You know, we we at Included Health um, work with a lot of employers, um, a lot of large health plans as well. We're definitely seeing an increased focus on mental health, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it, it comes back to the fact that we are all experiencing so much of the same stress right now, right? When the world shut down and we couldn't see family and friends and we were worried about our health, it really created a different kind of perspective on just how vulnerable we can be. But it also highlighted the fact that, you know, we weren't alone. So I think it's really that that humanity, that understanding of the importance of mental health that's causing our employers to then um, also want to focus on it more. I think there's also the bottom line though, right? As employers are seeing that um, reduced mental health, right? Worsening mental health amongst employees is resulting in more absenteeism from work. It's resulting in less productivity at work. It's really impacting the financials and the bottom line of whatever that that company's work is. Um, So that's another incentive for them to just want to be more um, proactive, Um, and focus on the preventative mental health needs that we know can reduce the severity of symptoms.
1: You talk about both employers and employees becoming proactive in terms of preventative care. Does does this mean that the centuries-long stigma attached to mental illness is finally beginning to diminish? And if so, where's the tipping point?
2: Uh, I, I do think that the stigma is reduced, right? So that's been really, really great to see. Again, it's evidenced by conversations like this one. Um, I think I think that we do still have um, um, more work to do, right? I think that there are what we see in our research and our studies right now because that's the other th- positive thing that's come out of the pandemic in addition to a lot of funding of you know new um, technology and startups that are focused on mental health, we also see investment into research around the impact of different um, uh, different mental health conditions on different populations. Um, unfortunately, but we do still see disparities um, in that regard though, right? How stress and anxiety impacts members of the BIPOC community, for example, or the LGBTQ plus community, um, it's not the same for everyone. And so because of that, I think that we do continue to see um, you know, stigma um, amongst different groups that is impacting the ability and the desire even to access mental health care. So we're not there yet. I do see improvement and that's been really helpful to see.
1: Telehealth, telecare, telemedicine, or e-therapy, all the buzzwords we're using, in the case of mental health care, is becoming much more popular. Many people likely aren't familiar with it or haven't participated in it yet. What is telehealth or e-therapy and how does it work?
2: Great question. It's something um, that I I love to talk about, for sure, given my role. Um, Let's start first with just what is therapy, right? I think that there are so many words out there, buzzwords out there can be a little bit confusing for people. Um, But what is therapy? Um, Psychotherapy, talk therapy, counseling, they're often used interchangeably, but they really mean the same thing. Therapy is meeting with a trained professional to take care of your mental and emotional health, right? The the goal of a therapist is really to provide insight into feelings and experiences that are causing stress or confusion in your life. And they can help you develop a treatment plan for how to deal with that. Um, And e-therapy or teletherapy is simply doing that in a virtual format. Um, I think, you know, the adoption of telemedicine more broadly um, is also something that we're seeing, which has been great to see but in the mental health space in particular, because you're engaging, that, that professional is engaging with a patient through talking as opposed to the need to lay hands, right? In some other areas of medicine, it's really very conducive to making good work and improving access to care.
1: And tell us about Included Health. How and when was it created and how did you become involved?
2: Yes, so Included Health um, is the merger um, of a couple of parent companies um, that have been doing a lot of good work for a very long time. So Doctor and Demand um, was a leading virtual care company that was established in 2014. Um, providing virtual urgent care um, and behavioral health care um, to to millions. Um, Grand Rounds Health was a healthcare navigation company founded in 2013, um, doing the kind of um, healthcare navigation and advocacy and uh, education work that so many people are in desperate need of these days. So in 20. 20- 21, we came together, we became Included Health um, because we really believe strongly in the power of navigation combined with virtual care. Really, for any kind of healthcare need you have, being able to access that right level of care for you with a trusted partner that's going to get you results so you're feeling better and more healthy. That's our overall goal um, at Included.
1: We've been talking to Dr. Nicole benders Hetty, and we'll be right back after a short break. <laughs> Become our friend on
0: Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today.
2: your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's one 1-888- 888 346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at Now, back to this week's show.
1: We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Dr. Nicole benders She's a board-certified psychiatrist and medical director of behavioral health at Included Health, a leading virtual care and healthcare navigation company. At Included Health, she leads the company's behavioral health practice. Focusing on patient experience, practice management, clinician recruitment, clinical support, and business development—that's a lot of hats to wear, doctor. <laughs> we were talking before the break about e-therapy, doctors providing mental health care online, and I'd like to continue that conversation. Have you found patients of different ages have different comfort levels with telehealth? And I'm thinking that you know, in terms of younger people being much more comfortable with technology than some of the older people, for instance.
2: Yeah, and um, I think it's a good question. I think. Um, we have not to the extent that I think a lot of people assume, right? Certainly, um, we do find that just by virtue of the world, right, that younger people are, are more used to using technology. They're often able to troubleshoot and, and get uh, get any kinks out of the system um, in an efficient way because that's what they're used to doing. However, um, it's not that we're not seeing adoption in other in other populations, other age groups as well. As a matter of fact, you know, when we looked at our numbers at the the start of the pandemic, um, our biggest early adopters and, and and the biggest demand for behavioral health um, services in particular were amongst um, 18 to 24 year olds and 65 plus year olds. So I think that when you think about um, the really goal to engage longitudinally to develop a relationship in a convenient way, Um, we're seeing adoption across the board, which has been really great to see.
1: And what are some of the pros and cons of telehealth compared to the traditional doctor's office visit?
2: Yes, I love this question. So certainly there are pros and cons, right? And absolutely like a big uh, factor in all of this is really what your individual preference is, right? Is it more convenient for you to see someone virtually um, based on your schedule and, and you know, the time it takes to get into a doctor's office? Um, or are you really someone that prefers to see um, someone and get all your healthcare in person? It, a lot of times it comes down to personal preference, but there are pros and cons. Um, some of the, the cons are really focused around um, that therapeutic alliance, right? How do you feel like you're able to really relate and build trust um, in the room um, when you are virtual. I think that too has had a lot of focus and research on it um, in the last few years. Um, but we had included have actually been doing this for a very long time, like I said. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily um, a big shift. Not a shift at all, actually, that we had to make at the start of the pandemic. Um, and that has allowed us to you know, really train and hire behavioral health clinicians that are very good at that, right? We have um, our, our, our tips and tricks of the trade to really help establish that therapeutic relationship, even from afar. Some of the, the pros of, of seeing someone virtually, um, even from my perspective as a psychiatrist, being able to treat a patient and see into their home environment and see how it is they're living with, what kind of supports they have in place, to bring a a family member into the conversation very easily, um, to take a walk over to that um, individual's fridge and see what kind of diet they're keeping, what kind of nutrition habits they have. These are insights that I have as a physician I would not have sitting in in a traditional brick-and-mortar setting. And I think that that's absolutely one of the greatest um, pros of this kind of treatment setting.
1: Earlier, we were talking about the stigma that's been attached to mental health. Do you think e-therapy eases the stigma that some people have about walking to a psychiatrist or psychologist's office?
2: I absolutely do. Absolutely. Right. Even imagine the the, the discomfort, right, that someone can have sitting in a, a waiting room, right? If, if someone that, you know, sees you walking into a, a behavioral health specialist's office, right, really being able to have people connect from the comfort of their own home um, helps reduce a lot of that, that, that stigma. The other thing that, you know, um, I think that we find a lot is that people just being in their home environment, being able to be dressed, you know, as comfortably as they would like to. Maybe they're taking their shoes off. Um, maybe they have their, their you know favorite blanket that's with them, you know, talking through a difficult subject. Those are the kinds of comforts in a home environment that I think can also reduce stigma and help people develop that trust um, to really engage in treatment as well.
1: I wouldn't have fun about that that home environment just being that much more comfortable, warm, natural surrounding. You know I guess ultimately, how effective are telehealth interactions? Do you see better patient outcomes as a result of telehealth, or is that just expecting too much?
2: I, I would actually argue that you do see better outcomes. um and there's a few reasons for that, right? I, again, I think that you want to be connected with a specialist, right? A professional that's highly trained in order to get to those um, improved um, health outcomes. Another factor though, is that the convenience of telehealth reduces no-show rates. It helps people be able to get to appointments in a more convenient way. It helps them engage in treatment more frequently if that's a part of their treatment plan. And for that reason as well, I think that we see improved clinical outcomes. So another really important factor to consider um, when when evaluating what kind of treatment setting is gonna be best for you.
1: And to that point you know, making it easier for folks to get treatment, does e-therapy fill an unmet demand for mental health care?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the other thing we haven't talked about quite yet is the shortage of behavioral health providers uh, that are in um, our country right now, right? This certainly is not um, something new. The shortage of providers has been, um, crazy, gosh, as long as I've been practicing. Um, and I think that last when I last checked, it was that a third of the U.S. population lives in an area that has this, one of these designated shortage areas. So um, using telehealth, right, teletherapy, telebehavioral health services expands access to more rural areas. Um, what we utilize and include it is also an um, employed model, right, where we employ our behavioral health providers, we get them licensed in multiple states. Right. That's expanding access um, to, to to just a broader area. Um, and I think that that's going a long way as well.
1: And this might be a rabbit hole. You don't want to go down as we didn't talk about it. But you talk about getting the licenses in different states, knowing the shortage that we have nationally, knowing the crisis that we have you know, in terms of this mental health tsunami. Is there something that the federal government should do to make it not just a state by state license, but just a federal license? I'm thinking like the financial services industry, you've got your securities licenses that are good in mm-hmm. every state.
2: Yes, um, absolutely. Right, I love I love the direction that you're going there, and some of that work has started. Right, um, it, it, it it has some some of it has started. Um Pact, for example, is um, a, a, a legislation that's come together to allow psychologists to live in a particular state and apply for the one license and then have access, have active licensure in all of the CIPAC states. And I think that they're sitting at about 22 states right now. Um, We're seeing the same type of um, development of that multi-state kind of compact for um, licensed clinical social workers right now. It it, it, It exists for positions as well at this point. So we're seeing adoption of it slowly there's a number of other behavioral health um, credential types that I think would also benefit from that kind of expansion, but support um, of that at the federal level would absolutely go a long way. Uh,
1: that's great information. I was unaware of that. And so um, that's going to be a rock thing I'm going to lift up and then do some try, try and do some policy work for you. Because I'm just thinking, you talked about the rural areas. I've got some friends that are farmers in Iowa,
2: mm-hmm.
1: very rural, and they might not be able to see anybody even telehealth-wise locally, but why can't they get somebody from Chicago or Seattle or Denver, something like that. So uh, that's great information. I appreciate that. And I guess we to that thing, point. I'm sorry.
2: The other thing that comes up in regards to, you know, just different state regulations is the prescribing of controlled substances, which is a really hot topic in the telemedicine world right now. Um, right now, you know, we continue to require um, an in-person visit, right, for the prescribing of controlled substances, which, you know, in- Treatment of opioid use disorders and, and all of that really can become quite problematic. So, I know that there's been a lot of focus on that. Um, you know, we we do a lot of advocacy work, you know, and are trying to push to expand access to care to all physical and mental health care in any way that we can. Um, so it's good to hear that those conversations are continuing as well.
1: And where there's still mental health care gaps and what will take to plug them, besides the shortage.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of my focus, again, is on longitudinal relationships that we can build and, and really foster. Um, you know, in addition to my role, I'm continuing to see patients um, on, a, on, a, on our platform. Um, and some of those patients have been individuals that I've been seeing for the last seven years. Right. So I think um, sometimes they'll come and go. Right. People will experience a stressor and want to come back into treatment briefly Um, as we were talking about before, but in order to really be able to do that and to foster that um, requires trust. It requires engagement. Um, So, really focusing in on how do we help individuals find that right fit, the behavioral health provider, that therapist that they're going to have a great fit with, that they're going to develop trust with, um, I feel comfortable coming back to again and again is how we, you know, improve the preventative care, have people coming in earlier, not waiting until symptoms are severe. I think that that's another gap that could use a little bit more focus.
1: You talk about seeing patients uh, for a lengthy period of time. Does the process of meeting patients online allow you to see more patients or do you typically still see the same number of patients, but simply just more efficient and convenient?
2: Well, I do think it's more um, efficient and convenient, but I do also think that it allows us to see see more patients, right? You know, think about the amount of time that it takes. If you were going into an in-person therapist's office, the time to walk into the room, to take your coat off, to put your bag down, to get settled in your seat, to exchange some pleasantries, right? That takes time, maybe a little bit of time, but that little bit can add up. Um, And so when you're doing a lot of that prep um, in advance of that actual virtual visit starting, I think that you can save time and get more people treated.
1: And we talked about the policy side of the coin. Now the other side of that uh, two-headed dragon or coin are insurance companies. Mm -hmm. Insurance companies have been notoriously reluctant to cover mental health care of any kind, though that has been changing for various reasons. Do insurers cover telehealth sessions?
2: They do. They do. Yeah. And Included, um, we work with a number of large insurers as well. I think that there are, um, you know, some differences in what um, an insurance company that wants to, you know, say contract with a virtual virtual care company is looking for as compared to an employer. But there is absolutely recognition that the care need exists and expanding access um, will reduce the severity of clinical conditions. And save money, right? I think that that point has been very clear. Um, and then there's just the 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 factor of choice, right? You know, I think that a lot of clients that we see um, are out there and just want um, in in the spirit of allowing that member to find that right fit for them and to give their preferences um, um, priority multiple vendors, multiple options, right, out there. Um, Again, I spoke a bit about the explosion of, you know, digital health companies that we've seen in the last couple years. Um, And as long as you're doing that in the right way, right, adhering to, you know, all federal, state legislature, maintaining confidentiality, all of those things you have to do. Um, But in general, the explosion, the attention to behavioral health needs and having more resources available, I think it's a very good thing.
1: And do you foresee a point when more doctor-patient sessions, particularly mental health-related sessions, will be online rather than in person? And do you think that's a good or a bad thing?
2: Um, I do, actually. You know, again, I think um, I hear it all the time from the patients that I see that they're just so grateful for a convenient option. Um, You know, not having to take time off work, not needing to find childcare to go into an office, um, not needing to schedule, you know, know, vacation time to see their doctors, right? It's just so convenient. And again, thinking about mental health care in particular, the fact that you're really talking to, you know, a, a, a professional that you trust and really engaging in your treatment in that way, I think that it makes sense. Um, of course, there's always going to be the need for some in-person care, um, but to see the kind of adoption and continued adoption that we've seen over the last three years um, with the the de- surge in demand because of the pandemic um, has been really encouraging towards that, that point.
1: You touched on it earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. You just mentioned now about trust. The doctor-patient relationship is just that. It's a relationship on trust. It's a two-way street. The interaction is not quite the same online as it is in person. What do you personally like about telehealth and their side, What don't you like so much?
2: Yeah. Um, so I think that there are certain things that we, you know, again, put into our training. Um, uh, what we actually call it is our, our, rather than bedside manner that you're establishing with the patient, um, the website manner right? So it's really being sure that you're engaging in eye contact, you're doing active listening, you're reflecting back what you're hearing that that patient in front of you say. I think that those are all huge parts of that trust. Um, I think that it can be easy to do. I think that one challenge um, is really responding to the unexpected in a in a different way than I might in a brick and mortar setting, right? It certainly is something that requires more more planning around, more attention to on the rare cases that you do experience someone who's really in the throes of a, a mental health crisis at the moment. Um, but that's something else to just take into consideration when developing these kinds of you know, platforms and, and digital forms is that you wanna be able to account for um, the unexpected and manage it in a safe way as well.
1: And what about confidentiality and privacy? You know, we know that the doctor's office is secure and private. The internet, not so much. You know, big tech is always watching, they say. Should people be concerned that their privacy could be compromised through a tele-session or sessions?
2: Uh, Yes. Yeah, you actually should, right? And that goes back to what I was just saying in terms of, you know, really vetting whatever it what kind of digital tool or virtual care platform you're going to be utilizing, you want to make sure that they are HIPAA compliant, that they are really safeguarding your privacy, your confidentiality um, in a way that they should be, right? According to the law, um, you want to be able to see information about those kinds of things in writing. You want to be explained by the the clinician that you're seeing exactly what um, privacy policies are in order to make sure that they're taking the appropriate steps. Um, same goes with the kind of platform that you're using, right? I included help absolutely uses a HIPAA compliant, you know, a platform that's going to safeguard patient information. We take that very seriously.
1: Are there situations where you don't recommend the telehealth approach? You know, for instance, is telehealth appropriate in treating patients with severe psychiatric issues or those who are suicidal?
2: Yeah, great question. And that's one that I get all the time as well. So I I don't think about what's appropriate and not appropriate for telehealth in terms of a condition, right? But rather in terms of ability to work within the limitations of a telehealth um, interaction. So for example, um, we absolutely can treat more severe mental health conditions, things like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. Uh, What you want to do, though, is make sure that that individual is able to engage appropriately uh, given the virtual encounter. So if someone, for example, is experiencing, say, auditory hallucinations, if they are so distracted and are not able to really be present in that virtual session, then that may be someone who needs and would benefit more from in-person care. Um, Same goes for things like, like suicidality, right? Unfortunately, you know, over the last few years, what we've seen an increase in is the kind of chronic, passive suicidality, rather than individuals who, you know, are are actively planning or have the intent to harm themselves. And unfortunately, the kind of chronic and passive suicidality are the kind of individuals who might go to the emergency room, but then be released. Right. So having some forum for them to connect to care, even virtually, I think, is better, um, is better than nothing. Right. And we are able to see, again, improvements, um, reductions in symptoms, um, reaching clinical goals, um, even for those populations as well.
1: And beyond e-therapy, technology is being used to a greater extent in mental health care, such as with various apps. Is there other technology that you recommend or in a general sense don't recommend people to use?
2: Yeah, so um, I would say in general, tr- being able to track how you're feeling over time and really have a clear sense of whether any symptoms are impacting your behavior or your functional status is so important in, in, in setting up treatment plans and making sure that you're progressing in treatment plans. So any app out there that can assist you in doing that, I'm all for it, right? And there's all kinds of things, you know, mood trackers, sleep trackers um daily reminders to you know take five minutes and do some mindfulness or do some deep breathing I think that those things are all great um, I think that what you want to be careful about is those that you know um, don't have the ability to direct you to a higher level of care in case that's needed um, and really ones that are not like guided by evidence-based therapies right cognitive behavioral therapy is a a evidence-based therapy that most of our therapists are engaging in and to really have like the science, the research behind what it is that you're doing can help um, prevent harm. So that's what's important too.
1: I noticed earlier you're wearing an Apple watch and my listeners know that I'm a huge Apple junkie and especially with the Apple watch. And I'm just amazed what they've done over the last three-ish years, I'll call it, in terms of just developing more technology within the watch, tells you to stand up, tells you to breathe for a minute, tracks Mm -hmm. everything. And so you know, obviously there's a price tag with that, but to your point, the apps in terms of mindfulness and just little reminders, it's the simple things that we just need to think about. And we're all busy. Everyone's busy, but you yeah. gotta take some of that time for yourself just to make sure that you're okay.
2: Yeah. The development of those kinds of trackers, again, for behavioral health conditions, I've just been so impressed with as well. Um, because it's it's things like, you know, noticing that. Um, your heart rate is picked up, right? So is that a trigger for some anxiety that you're experiencing? Is it, you know, a, a flashback for someone that with PTSD, right? So it's really being very creative about the kinds of information that we're collecting
1: um, that can help us manage a lot of these conditions better. Well, and to that point, point, then we'll move on. But I, I laugh because when I work out, sometimes different movements, it'll trigger and they'll say, do you need an SOS call? And I'm like, no, no, don't, don't call 911. I'm just doing a uh-huh. push-up. <laughs> So let's, we've been talking about the patients. Let's talk about you for a moment. Hearing people in burden themselves or their mental health issues by loading them on you has to be stressful for you day in, day out. I've asked this question of mental health professionals before, and I'm eager to hear your, your perspective. Who does a psychiatrist, and in this case, you, talk to when she's stressed out, or to unburden herself with mental or emotional baggage?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate the question for sure. Um... Yeah, I talk to my my family, right? You know, sometimes I call my husband my therapist, right? I think having some kind of outlet is, is so important for everyone, right? And many, you know, psychiatry residency training programs, right? Being in your own therapy is a requirement, right? So it's not as if mental health professionals are immune to stress or, the, or mental health conditions or even serious mental health conditions, but... Having that kind of resource, that kind of support in place um, is a really important part of of what I think everyone needs, and it's certainly what keeps me grounded as
1: well. And I saw that you've written about mothers, mental illness, and recovery. Are women more open to seeking mental health care than men, or just as caregivers who often put everyone else first, do you find that they seem to to put others first in this area too?
2: Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of unique things about women, um, it's it likely all of the above, right? I think that absolutely women are more often caregivers, um, are more um, often willing and open about talking about feelings and the impact of um, various mental health conditions. I think that there's you know a lot around gender roles in our society that makes it a little bit easier for women to ask these kinds of questions about emotions um, and really want to dig deep there. Um, But it's not to say that we haven't seen great engagement, you know, from our, from our male population as well. It's just different, right? A lot of the focus of my research and writing had been on, you know, mental health conditions and allowing women to really tell their story, how their symptoms are impacted by, you know, hormones that, you know, are uniquely um, um, affecting women. Um, Postpartum depression, for example, um, you know, Premenstrual dysphoric disorder. There's just um, some different ways that these conditions are expressed for women that I think is really important to pay attention to. So it's been a passion of
1: mine. I know you mentioned that you talked to your husband as sort of your, your in house therapist. What are the routines do you follow or what would you recommend to our listeners and viewers?
0: Yeah.
2: So I think that being proactive about setting aside time for self care goes such a long way. Right, and that self care—what that really looks like for you—can can vary quite a bit, right? I love to cook. I love music, right? So most nights you'll find me in my kitchen, you know, singing songs while I'm cooking dinner for my family, right? Really having that time like set aside where I'm not chasing and trying to find the time um, to do that kind of self care. Is really something that works well for me. Um, I think that there's so much on our plates all the time. So to again be proactive about it and rather than trying to carve out time that you may not find um is the way to approach it.
1: I'm laughing. You talk about cooking, I love to cook as well. And people are, I don't know why, but a little bit surprised, like, you love to cook. And to your point, yes, like that's just me. And I put in a ball game and it's just cook and you follow the instructions and, and off you go. You just kind of put everything else out there and uh, so I appreciate that. You know, and I see we're coming up at the end of our time together and have three or four minutes left. What's your advice for us to live our best lives on a daily basis?
2: Oh, I love that question. You know, I think that really a focus on growth um can help a lot of people just live your your best life day to day to day. You know, it's a huge part of the um, mental health profession, right? Me as a psychiatrist, to believe in the power of people to change, right? I really believe very strongly in that. Um, But to do so, I think that you have to, again, be proactive about it, right? You have to accept the fact that no one's perfect. um, Give yourself grace, right? When mistakes occur or setbacks occur, but always just have one small way that you're wanting to grow. Right. And when you accomplish that, set up a new goal. Right. I think that really that kind of push um, is something that can help you help you feel better day to day.
1: Give grace is a phrase I've been hearing more and more from the guests in the show. And I just love that. It's just so simple and it's so easy to do. And what's your best advice to empower our audience in terms of taking charge of our mental health care and well-being?
2: Yeah, I think it's that information piece again, right? Again, we can become so busy, like running back and forth day to day with all of our responsibilities that it makes it hard to notice, you know, have I been losing a lot of weight? Have I been gaining weight? Uh, when's the last time I talked to you know my favorite cousin, my favorite uncle, right? To really like set that aside a time um, to 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 check in on yourself, to notice changes, right, good or bad. If something good is happening more in your life, why is that? Have I been going to sleep earlier this week? You know, have I changed my diet this week? It's really just being more mindful and paying more attention to those types of things. I think can advance us, can insert more of the positive, take away more of the negative from our day-to-day.
1: More positive is always better, right? Yeah. Dr. Nicole Benders-Hattie, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. It's been great to be with
1: you, Chris. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Figure. And on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with a leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.